Now our article today, we're, we're halfway there. We're basically halfway there as we, uh, as we push forward. So we're making pretty good pace here. Um, our article is Article 19, and I think it's a happy, a happy coincidence, serendipitous, that we're, we're talking about the church uh, uh, and a sermon that follows hard upon the, the, uh, the fourth commandment. Article 19, uh, the visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men. Josh, can you read the, uh, the text in the square brackets there that I, I supplied? <laughs> I put that in there just to, be, just to be fair. The visible church of Christ is a congregation of faithful men and women in the which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly ministered according to Christ's ordinance, in all those things that of necessity are requisite to the same. As the church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch have erred or erred, so also the church of Rome hath erred or erred, not only in their living in manner of ceremonies, but also in matters of faith. Now, just to put this in its proper context to remind us um, of our our uh, place in the Reformed world, I've put here um, what John Calvin gives as the marks of the church. Two marks of the church in the Church of England, two marks of the church in, in Calvin. Calvin says, the big finger here pointing to Calvin, wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, so we, we see that word purely again, um, and the sacraments administered according to institution, um, there, it, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. So Calvin says the very same thing. This, this Article 19 is really a, um, a reissuing of Calvin's doctrines of the marks of the church. Now this idea of the marks of the church is a, is a you know, if you, if you come from a Reformed background or Reformed circles, you, you hear it all the time. What are the marks of the church? What are the marks of the church? Um, they're very important to Reformed people, as I think they ought to be. And so we're going to talk about these two marks tonight and uh, just um, think about some of the implications. Now, just above, above our first note there, I've put another uh, quote from Calvin, again from Book 4. I was tempted to leave aside actually his name here just to see if you could guess who it was because it's it's language that uh, few of us would would attribute to Calvin instinctively um, because of the the high doctrine of the church it's very very high he says for there is no other way to enter into life unless this mother the church conceive us in her womb give us birth nourish us at her breast, and lastly, unless she keep us under her care and guidance until putting off mortal flesh, we become like angels. Our weakness does not allow us to be dismissed from her school until we've been pupils all our lives. Furthermore, away from her bosom, one cannot hope for forgiveness of sins or any salvation." Extra ecclesium nulla salus. Outside the church, there's no salvation. Calvin here repeats the early church slogan, Augustine's particularly, that outside of the church, in the preaching of the word, in the giving of the sacraments, there's no salvation. <clears throat> now, this idea means that not only does the church, um, not only were you born again to God under the preaching of the word, 
but that our salvation is nourished upon God's grace through the offices and the ministry of the church, namely the continued preaching of the word, which is the agent of sanctification, and the administration of the Lord's Supper, which is, which is the ministration of Christ's life to his people. Um, now, if you take this quotation here from Calvin and you drop it in the middle of kind of the middle of the road evangelical church, they don't know what to do with it. They simply don't know what to do with it because there's such a kind of an individualism. My salvation has to do with me and Jesus. My salvation is Jesus and me. I walk in the garden alone. Is that what it goes? I walk in the garden alone and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. It's just me and Jesus. And I don't need a church to mediate any of God's grace to me. The wrong reading of the Reformation says that. There's no kind of, you know, you know those commercials? We cut out the middle person, you know, and, and with the big box store. We cut out the middleman. That's actually not what the Reformers were talking about because they never cut out the, the, the middle. You know, Christ is the only mediator, right? And yet, and yet, he dispenses, he gives his effectual saving presence through the church. And Calvin says outside of the church, that effectual presence of Christ through the word, through the Lord's uh, Supper, is not available. Um, and that's, you know, and, and you may be kind of encountering this for the very first time, and it, it's just kind of mind-numbing, um, and, and that's okay. Um, but that's what Reformed teaching teaches, and that's what the Anglican Church teaches as well, and I believe it's what Scripture teaches. Um, okay, so that's that kind of sets us up for this high-vaulting view of the church. <clears throat> now, uh, in this article, we have first the notion of the visible church. The visible church um, is not in contradistinction to the invisible church, but it's different than the in invisible church. The visible church is part of the invisible church, um, and yet it's it's in some ways um, in some ways different than. When we speak of the visible church, we speak of the church militant on this side of heaven. And when we speak of the invisible church, we speak of the church triumphant. And so really what we have here is the church at war and the church at rest. The invisible church is uh, made up of all people, of all times, of all nations, who are united to Christ forevermore. And... Um, it is it is that sector of the church which has which we understand to be eternally safe and secure in in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we are part of the invisible church. We're part of it, um, but we've not yet entered into that into that rest. And so, the visible church is the church here and now, which is engaged against sin, and death, and the devil. Um, there's a there's a couple of quotes here I'm going to give you tonight from John uh, John Jury. He was a, an old Puritan. He says he says this about it's it's a uh, an essay called the character of an old English Puritan. Very good reading. He says his own life. He's talking now about the Puritan. He counted a warfare wherein Christ was his captain, his arms, prayers, and tears. 
The cross was his banner, or is his banner, um, and his word, vincent, vincit qui patatur. He conquers who suffers. <laughs> he conquers who suffers. The one who suffers, or the one who endures, is the one who conquers. Christ is his captain. His arms, his weapons, are his prayers and his tears. And his slogan is this, he who suffers is the one who conquers. That's the church militant. And everybody who confesses Christ in the church is part of that church militant, part of that church visible, whether they're part of the, the invisible church, the one that eternally belongs to Christ and will remain, will be part of that perfect beatitude forever, we can't determine. None of us infallibly can tell whether anyone is part of the invisible church. None of us. We can have our feelings. I can say, I got a pretty good sense about Andrew. I think he loves Jesus. I think I'll see him forever. But I don't have the, the prerogative to name Andrew as part of the invisible church. All I know is that he's part of the visible church, which is the suffering church, which is the militant uh, um, warfare church. Okay, so, so what this is about, Article 19, it's about what's visible, what we can attest to. It's not about what is invisible, what none, what none of us can attest to. Okay, so it's about the visible church. The visible church is, now the first word we have here is faithful. It is a congregation of faithful men. <coughs> Um, now, uh, by faithful here, the primary me meaning is those who profess the faith. The, the, uh, the, the idea here is from Acts 2.44, the Greek phrase there, pantas dihoi pistuantis, and all the believers. Christians are those who believe the faith and profess the faith. And the focus, as we see here in point three, and the content of that belief is Jesus Christ. Jesus, who as Lord and Christ, he is the perfect fulfillment and he is the perfect revelation of God's redemptive will towards mankind. That's what faith pitches upon. It pitches only upon Christ. Christ now reveals everything that God is to us from Genesis to Revelation. Christ is the great lens. Christ is the, is, is the content of faith, the subject of faith, um, and so everyone who is in the visible church is one who professes Jesus Christ as Lord and as Messiah. Both of these two things. The anointed one who has come to save and forgive us of our sins, but also the Lord of, of heaven and earth. The one to whom every knee must bow. And so there's, there's no, this idea of faithful here, it's not just a kind of a creedal affirmation. That Jesus Christ died and rose again and forgives me of my sins. It can't be that. It also has to be, to be the one who submits to the Lord and, and a glad and a willing surrender to all of his rules and all of his, his, um, his will for, for our lives. That has to be there uh, in this content of faithful. Lord and Christ. Um, this is, again, from Acts chapter 2. He is, he is Lord and Christ. And, and faith has to fix on those two things. Okay, so um, it's, it's those who profess the faith, faithful. Through, uh, four, um, even though the church of, of Christ, the visible church, is a congregation of faithful men, 
If we look over to Article 26, we read this. In the visible church, the evil be ever mingled with the good. Evil, the evil be ever mingled with the good in the visible church. And so right away, this this, um, helps to define what Article 19 is talking about. The church is never where the pure word of God is preached and where there's only faithful people. You get people who profess the faith, but who aren't actually joined to Christ. They are they are evil. <laughs> and so we have to kind of um, rescue ourselves from any notion of the church that's just a pure place of, of believers. It's never going to happen. On this side of heaven, the visible church will always be mixed. People who say they're Christians, they say the creed, they say the Lord's Prayer, they go up for communion, they do all these things, but they do not belong to Christ. They're not his. Now, where do we see this? Well, we see it in Matthew 13, 24 to 30. And my Bible reader here tonight is going to read that for me. Matthew Put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. While his men were sleeping, his enemy came, and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and get, gather them? But he said, No. Lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. In the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Thanks be to God. So in, there we have it from the mouth of Jesus that the church is the is the gathering of the weeds and the grain, the true and the false, and it will be that way. And if we try to if we try to fix that now, it will only harm us. So if we go around with our magnifying glass or, or whatever it is and and try to sleuth out who's who's true and not true, and and to kind of get rid of them because we say I think that you're not true and I think that it, it will lead to trouble. Now. Um, the, the, broad, the, the broad intent of that parable is to teach us <clears throat> uh, that the, the notion of a purely pure church is just false. It's not, not, it's not going to happen. Um, it doesn't teach us that we ought not be... That wasn't me. <laughs> wary, wary of the false... Remember when Paul is, is leaving Ephesus? Do you remember his sermon, what he says? When I go, everyone's crying. If Paul don't go, when I go, wolves are going to come in. They're going to come in. They, they, you know, nature pours a vacuum. They're going to come in. And um, he, he warns them to be wary of those things. And so it's not like we're, the parable's teaching that we just kind of let, let it happen and, 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 and um, you know, que sera, sera. That's, that's not what it's teaching. It is telling us that we're not necessarily going to know because they look a lot alike. 
the tares and the wheat. And I, th I think, I think in fact, they're almost identical to look at in nature, the tares and the wheat. They imitate it, uh, and it's very hard to tell. So we're not always going, going to, to know, but the mixture will be there. So there's a sense here um, of our inability to tell which is which. Now think of, of Matthew 26, 22, and I've put the, I've put the verse here. Judas is not only a bad guy, but but Judas is a guy that eventually um, you know Satan Satan enters. He becomes the kind of the house of the evil one himself. It's like Weston in Paralandra. You know he he becomes this this vessel for Satan himself to fill. Well, um, none of the disciples have sensed it. It's amazing, isn't it? When when Jesus says, you know, one of you is going to betray me. Not one of the disciples say, well, is it Judas? <laughs> they say, is it I? That's what they say. None of them, none of them know what's going to happen. And I, I can imagine how staggered they all are. Judas? What? That doesn't make any sense. He, he's been with us all this, all this time. Um, later on, they're, they're quite um, explicit about his evil nature. So Judas, um, they, didn't, they couldn't tell Judas. Demas... 2 Timothy 4.10, Demas had been a, uh, a, a traveling companion with Paul, a worker together with Paul. And Paul says, all of a sudden, Demas has forsaken me. Do you know why? Why, why did Demas forsake Paul? In love with this present world. All of a sudden, this colleague of Paul's does a 180. And there's a sense there when you read that of Paul's great, of his great chagrin um, in that. Alexander the coppersmith, again, same, same epistle, another co-worker of Paul, trust, Paul trusts him, Paul maybe you know, has him do some stuff. And what does Paul say about Alexander the coppersmith? He's done me great harm. He's hurt me. <laughs> stab, stab Paul in the back, just like, just like uh, you know, that, uh, that fellow from Burgundy stabbed Siegfried in the back, right where he was vulnerable in uh, the, the Nibelungen lead. But the, uh, he stabs Paul in the back, he didn't see it coming. He's done me much harm. So um, look at here, uh, John Calvin, uh, book four. Calvin says this. He says, to know who are the Lord's is a prerogative belonging solely to God. For those who seem utterly lost and quite beyond hope are by his goodness called back to the way. That's a lovely encouragement, isn't it, from Calvin? Those, there's no hope for this guy. Or gal. Those who seem quite beyond hope, just like the Apostle Paul or Saul at the time, while those who more, who more than others seem to stand firm often fall. Therefore, according to God's secret predestination, as Augustine says, many sheep are without the church and many wolves are within. That's a reality that we can't let go of. This visible church um, is always going to be filled with people who don't necessarily belong to the Lord. Uh, and we just have to remember that. It doesn't mean we go on a crusade, um, and we, we may not always be able to tell. Um, now, we do, however, in this visible church, have an ability to tell. Now, someone read for me. Um, uh, you can do it, Josh, if you have it, or someone else, Matthew 7, 15 to 20. I have it. Okay. Because I have a job. <laughs> Matthew 7. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Okay, so on the one hand, the gospel tells us we, we, we may not be able to distinguish them. It's not a given that we can distinguish them. On the other hand, Jesus teaches us that we will know people by their fruits. And Calvin, Calvin on the, on the, on the following page there, he, he says, he calls it, the quote there is his phrase, a certain charitable judgment. <clears throat> we recognize as members of the church those who by confession of faith, one, they, they confess the uh, Christ as Lord and as, as Savior. And then by example of life, they not only speak it, but we see them doing it. It comes out of them. It shapes the way that they live. And then by partaking of the sacraments um, and, and professing God and Christ uh, with us. <clears throat> so where uh, the, the Gospels say where we see people professing the faith, but their lives don't add up. They, they, they say profess belief, but um, they don't live as if they love God. Um, Jesus and, and love people. Uh, Jesus says that there's reason to suspect those people. Now, what we're to do with them is another question. Well, that's, that's another question altogether. So in some cases, we don't know. In some cases, we need to be alert, Jesus, because he says, be wary. Be alert to this. Bad people are going to come in, and they're going to pretend to something that's not real. Um, and we have to be, um, you know, we do have to, I think, as Christians, cultivate a, a sense of this. Not a kind of a, a, a liver shiver kind of thing. Not like, I don't know, I, I don't know why, but I just don't feel good about this person. That's, that's not that kind of subjective uh, quiver. That's not what we're talking about. But it's, it's objectively looking at someone's life and saying, you know, there seems to be something off here because of, because of this or because of that. The fruit. What's the fruit? Love. Yeah. To who? Who, whose love will the true Christian foremost exhibit? To, to whom will that love foremost be, be demonstrated? To God. To God. To God. Love to God. Joy in God. The peace of God. Their lives, their lives begin to um, just they, they kind of waft with a with a peace. I mean, that's that's kind of extravagant language, but they they have the peace of God about them. They have love to God. When they talk. They talk about their love for God. When they talk, they talk about their joy in God. It's what they want to talk about. That's, that's the new nature, right? The new nature cries what? You're born again, Paul says, and therefore you cry, Abba, Father. And Paul, when Paul says that, it's like the baby's first breath. When they're born again, you know, you've been in a, a birthing room. When, they're, when, when that baby comes out, they just start to cry. When all is when all is is as it should be, right? They just start to cry. 
And Paul's saying when, when, the, when the man or woman is born again, they just by nature cry out. They begin prayer. Prayer is a sign of the new birth. We, we do it automatically. I can testify. I mean, when I had a very profound uh, conversion experience at 20 where my life did 180 in a moment. And I remember coming home that Sunday and I, I, I got into my room and on my desk and I just cried out, Father. For the first time in my life, I cried out, Father. It was, it was the, the new nature, longing for God, thirsting for God. That's, that's what new nature does. Now, we have to be careful that we don't take a pattern of a, of a mature Christian and, and plant it on a, on, an, on a newborn believer because it's often newborns come out and like Lazarus out of the cave, they've got grave clothes all around them, and Jesus has to take them off, or get us to take them off, take off the grave clothes. Nonetheless, the fruit, Jesus tells us, look for the fruit. Love, joy, peace. And primarily, those need to be directed to God. Um, and there, it is incumbent upon us as mature Christians to be heedful to this, because it's a dominical command. It's a dominical command. Okay. So what, is, what do we do with the outright disobedient? <clears throat> now you'll notice in both Calvin and in, um, in the, the, um, our Anglican article, discipline isn't a, an explicit mark of the church. There's been a lot of discussion about whether discipline is a mark of the church. In Calvin, it's not explicitly, neither is it, is it here. It is by relationship uh, um, to the, the mark of the word. The, the preaching of the word will result in, in discipline. So, what do we do? Look at what Calvin, this is in his brief outline of the Christian faith in 16, around 1635, 1636. Calvin wrote an, an outline of, of theology. And you ought to all read it. Um, in fact, we got it as a, as a parish council when we, when we planted this church. Um, it's a sweet little read. It eventually morphed into Calvin's catechism. In fact, it... it, it it, it's the structure of his first edition of the Institutes. And this is what he says. He says, the discipline, which is now excommunication, part of what the church does is to thrust people out, um, is indispensable among believers because the church is the body of Christ and must not be defiled and contaminated by bumptious. That's a great word, eh? Stop being so bumptious. Bumptious, which means self-assertive, and proud, right? Um, was it is it uh, Diotrephes? No, uh, is it Diotrephes in, in John second, who loves to have the, pre the preeminence? Forget his name now. He loves to have the preeminence. John says he resists this kind of self-assertive man who resists uh, John's teaching. Bumptious people and putrid members like these who dishonor the head. The saints must not be corrupted and harmed, as happens by keeping company with wicked people. So the in, in this case, the fly ruins the ointment. Bad, bad company um, corrupts is the idea here. Uh, and so the church needs to be very careful with, with these. Now, these are not, don't, don't get Calvin wrong here. These are not seekers who are yet unconverted, just wanting to come into the church and kind of hear the gospel. These are people who are claiming to be Christians and are being subversive and are being antagonistic and are leading people away from the true faith. Um, 
This is what Calvin, Calvin's talking about. And these kinds of people need to be dealt with. Besides the punishment of their malice, malice, it befits the wicked themselves, while tolerance would cause them to become more obstinate. If we just let them do it, it would actually do the wicked more harm. And so how does the church respond to, um, to people who are disruptive, who are bumptious? We, the, 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 the church excommunicates them. Where do we see this in Paul? Where does Paul talk about excommunication? First Corinthians, right? And what does he, does anybody remember what he says? A little leaven leavens the loaf, right? That's what Calvin says here. He says the saints must not be corrupted and harmed by keeping company with wicked people. It's astonishing how strong Paul's language is there in that chapter. Just you need to drive him out and surrender him to the evil one, in a sense. Um, and uh, that's, that's part of the church's ministry to do that, even though it's a very difficult one and a ministry that no pastor ought to take specific pleasure in. Okay, so that's, that's uh, uh, some, some um, background to this idea of the, the, visible, the visible church. Now we move on to this next phrase, uh, the visible church of Christ. It's a congregation of faithful uh, men and women in which the pure word of God is preached. What does the article mean here by pure? Pure in the sense that it's unmolested by any teaching that diminishes the majesty of God and the catastrophe of human sin. Um, in essence, the pure word of God is that kind of preaching that adheres to the first three commandments. What's the importance of the first three commandments? One, God is first above all. That's what the gospel actually comes to proclaim. Jesus Christ, in his gospel, comes to proclaim the worth and the value of God. Um, Thomas Goodwin, a great theologian, he said the fundamental defect is low thoughts of God. That's what sin is. Sin is low thoughts of God. How else could Satan, with vaulting ambition, say, I will be like the Most High, unless he cannot possibly fathom who the Most High is? How can you think to equal that which cannot be equaled, unless you've concluded that that which cannot be equaled can indeed be equaled. So the fundamental defect is low thoughts of God. So the first commandment, you know, God is above all, God is first. The second commandment against idolatry, you shall not make me to seem like the creature. I'm not like you. Even though God who is transcendent is always the imminent one. There's this tension, right, between the transcendent God and the imminent God, the God who's utterly unlike us and utterly distant from us is the God who's most close to us. And that old phrase that Thomas Aquinas says, he's nearer to me than I am to myself. How is that possible? That's the tension, that's the tension of the scriptures. The God who is most far and most unlike is the God who's most near, especially in the Incarnation. And then the, the third commandment about his name, that, that the preaching of the word must always um, uh, understand the fullness of God's name in every sense. Wherever God reveals himself as who he is, the preaching of the word to be pure must reckon with what God reveals of himself and not obfuscate that or hide that or diminish that in, in any way. And so the, 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 um, the real... Good verse here is 2 Corinthians 10, 5. 
which Paul talks now about the ministry of preaching. Who, who can, Josh, 2 Corinthians 10.5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. It's, it's a wonderful description of apostolic preaching. We destroy arguments and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and we bring it down. So all these ideas, ideologies, thoughts, feelings, emotions that say, um, I, I don't want God to be God. We, preaching, true preaching that preaches the pure word of God, it, it, brings, it, brings that, it brings that down. And it does that through the gospel. It does that through pre preaching Jesus Christ as now the full revelation of God's glory um, through his death and through his resurrection uh, and through Christ now revealing the Father to us. Okay, so um, it's the unmolest, it's, it's unmolested teaching um, that highlights the majesty of God and highlights the reality of human sin. Repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ. Right? That has to be the content of every, every message. If it's not repentance towards God and faith in Jesus Christ, then the message collapses. There's no feeling better until there's feeling worse. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, that, that's what pure preaching will, will encapsulate. The Word of God, um, the, the idea here now of the Word of God is, means it's the means of our sanctification. John 17, 17, thy word is truth. Sanctif sanctify them by your truth. Jesus is now praying. Sanctify them by thy truth. The word is truth. The word is the primary cleansing agent in our Christian life. It is the primary cleansing agent by which we are set apart from the world and by which all of the, the, um, the, the darkness, all of the poison, all of the, the, the accretions right, that, get, that get to us, they're, they're washed away. It's the pure water. How's a young man going to make his way clean? How does he do it? A young man who's so sodden with the ways of the world, with all the dirt. Imagine the human brain. Just sodden with the dirt of the world. It's low thoughts of God, and it's, it's selfishness, all that. The only way is the, the crystal pure, clean water of God. Cleansing through our minds, cleansing through our minds, washing it away. And so if we're not in the Word... Always, like not just on Sundays, but always in the Word. There's, there's just, there's, there's no getting away from the, the rottenness of the Word. So, the Word of God is the primary means of our sanctification. It sets us apart, and it makes us clean. Um, thirdly, the, 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 the preaching of the Word is what Calvin calls the ministry of heavenly doctrine. The preaching of the Word is where the people of God come beneath the rule of God. I've said this a number of times, God wants to rule you. And I don't know about you, but when you start to really recognize this, that God wants to rule you and that there's no way out, you don't have an option. When God's word comes to you and it says, you shall do this or you shall not do this, there's no option. And when you're being sanctified and when you encounter this, if you've not felt the rebelliousness of your own heart, you mean I don't have an option here? <laughs> I have to do this? There's no choice about this? Then if, if that's not been your experience, then, then you may not have yet fully reconciled yourself to the fact that Christianity is about you being ruled by God's laws and His ways and, and not yours. 
the process of sanctification is about the individual being ruled by the word of God. Calvin has a lovely phrase. He says, hemmed in by the mountains of his word. I can't go anywhere. What does God say to, to uh, Joshua in Joshua 1? When he says, you know, I've given, I've given every place for you, every place that the sole of your foot shall tread has been given to you. Then he says, Joshua, turn neither to the right or to the left, but meditate in my law day and night. Joshua, there is no options for you. I'm not letting you can't turn to the right. You can't turn to the left. The only way for you to go is in the footsteps of my word. Um, that's what, that's what the, the ministry of preaching is. And it should be uncomfortable then. It should be uncomfortable. It's to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable, right? Um, the, the, this idea, because we're sinners, because all of us by nature, we resent and we reject the rule of God. Sitting under that ministry of preaching should make us feel, at times, kind of uncomfortable. It should prick us. Uh, to be the true true ministry, as, as well as it should comfort us, comfort, oh, comfort my people. Number four, the office of preaching in the voice of Christ. What is what is what, what does it mean here by the preaching of the pure word? Well, here's Calvin again. The human ministry which God uses to govern the church is the chief sinew by which believers are held together in one body. Neither the light and heat of the sun nor food and drink are so necessary to nourish and sustain the present life as the apostolic and pastoral office is necessary to preserve the church on earth. And this office, here's where it gets really important here, could not be more splendidly adorned than when Christ said, he who hears me, he, he who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. Now there's a there's a there's a twofold kind of um, trepidation here. There's a trepidation for the listener who hears the office of the preacher and says, "Nah." There's a trepidation for the preacher who gets into the pulpit and realizes the position he's placing himself in of "Thus saith the Lord." And if he doesn't, <laughs> if the Lord's not saying it. Well, that's a pretty dangerous spot to be. You know what happened to prophets where they said, thus saith the Lord, and that it didn't come to pass? It wasn't a very happy end for those guys. So there's a, there's a tremulousness here. There's a trepidation, a fear and trepidation to the, 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 um, to the role of the office of the preacher. When you hear the preaching of the word, Jesus says, you hear the voice of Christ. Um, and we ought to think of that um, as, we, as, we come, as we come into the uh, beneath the ministry of the word. Um, under that arrow there, uh, for what the Lord has once attested is of no small importance, that when the pastors he sends are received, it is he himself who is received. And in the same way, it is he who is rejected when they are rejected. I wonder, I wonder if that we really believed what Jesus says about the ministry of the preacher and, and the office of the church. I wonder if we wouldn't come into church a little bit more prepared in our own hearts, for what's about to happen. We are encountering the voice of Christ and the person of Christ through the ministry of the church. It's where he has bound his effectual presence, really and truly, not just kind of metaphorically. 
Um, this is why the Puritans were so big on preparing for the Lord's Day. They actually got themselves ready. And when the Puritan read, remember the Sabbath, they, they read, remember it's coming. It's coming up. And I need to get myself ready because if, if, if they would say, if, if the Queen Elizabeth II says to Nathan, I'm going to come to your house tomorrow, Nathan would probably tidy up a little bit or kind of get ready in some way or just feel like rather than just kind of sleep in and hear the doorbell and just, oh yeah, I forgot, the Queen's coming today. Like he would... And, and this idea that church is where the, the majesty of God comes profoundly, even if we don't feel it, we believe it by faith. Um, the Puritans were uh, took that very seriously, and I think we ought to as well. Um, the content of the word. What is the content? Again, there's Calvin. The gospel message in summary is that we are slaves of sin and death, and that we are loosed and delivered by the redemption of which is in Christ Jesus, repentance towards God, faith in Jesus Christ, the two heads of, um, of all true um, gospel preaching. The practice of preaching. Now listen to this. Thank you, Ajax. The practice of preaching. Therefore, here's Calvin's theology of the practice of preaching. Now you tell me if this sounds anything like what we hear in North America. Let ministers of the word make bold to do all things by that word which they have been appointed to give out. Let them compel all the powers, the celebrities and high-placed people of the world to humble themselves in order to obey the majesty of the word. By means of that word, let them give commands to everybody, from the greatest to the least. Let them build up Christ's household demolish Satan's reign, pasture the sheep, kill the wolves, and instruct and encourage the teachable. Let them accuse, reprimand, and convince the rebellious, but all by the word. Now, we, we, we tend not to think of preaching like that, but preaching is a confrontation of the principalities and powers. The pure preaching of the word every Sunday, Calvin says, is a, is, it's a confrontation with the principalities and powers, and it's a confrontation of all that's going on in your hearts that is rejecting and revolting against the word of God. My heart too, right? I preach to myself as often as I preach to you. In fact, I preach to myself before I preach to you. Um, but it's this idea of, of, of confrontation. And then the... the, the um, the hope of the gospel. Finally, the uh, the gravity and the weight of Sunday worship as a means of grace. Calvin says believers have no greater help than public worship. For by it, God raises his own folk up, upward step by step. God breathes faith into us only by the instrument of his gospel. Now, what's the what does Calvin think is the instrument of his gospel? You think preaching and 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 the church, right? The 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 here's he's talking about the church and, and word and sacrament. That's the instrument of his gospel. So God breathes faith into people only by the instrument that is the church. Now, how many solas are there typically? Five, right? Only Christ, only the Word, only God's glory, only faith, only Scripture. What does Calvin also say here? Only the church. 
sola ecclesia. It's the church, it's the sola that, that reformers by and large have forgotten about. Um, only the church. You don't get it anywhere else. What about all those people who aren't in church? Who say, I don't need to go to church. It's actually not that momentous. I had someone, and I, you know, I, I, I say that with a lot of kind of personal experience because I had someone only a year ago say to me, the answer is not the church. That's not where the answer is. It's not that important. And that idea is prevalent in North America today. And it's not according to Scripture. It's certainly not according to, to, to the Reformed faith. Um, this, this idea of, of sola ecclesia, if anyone's interested here, I put a little link. Last fall, I was asked to write a, uh, an article for, um, for an Anglican newspaper. And it was, uh, it was published last fall, and you can see it there if you, just, if you want to, uh, to type in that, where I deal with this, the, the, the solo that's been left behind. In fact, I called the article Left Behind in a cheeky kind of way. Um, <laughs> um, only the church. It's the only place it happens. Now, um, just read with me here. Can actually someone else read it? Read, uh, Tim, can you read through? This is John Jury. This is the character of an old English Puritan. And here we have a sense of the weightiness of, of church, word and sacrament, and what it means. Tim. The Lord's day he esteemed a divine ordinance and rest on it necessary, so far as it conduced to holiness. He was very conscientious in observance of that day as the market day of the soul. Just pause there for a second. Market day of the soul. All of the, the, these, these, uh, these English Puritans, they thought Sunday was the market day of the soul. Now, what do you think that means? It's the market day for the soul. Pardon me? It's where you gather, yeah. So in the one sense, it's the, it's the public meeting place where everyone uh, gathers, the, um, uh, the plaza in that sense. But, but in what other way? It's not only meeting people, but it's, what do you go to the market for? You get your food, right? You get all of your food. You stock up. You fill your shelves. You fill your pantry. You fill the pantry of the soul on Sunday. It's the market day of the soul. That's why Calvin says, he says, you know, if we keep this day, we will know that we've profited by it because throughout the week we go into our cupboard and we pull stuff out. And what happens? We go through the week and we get drained and we get we fall, and we get hard, and then we go back to the market and we get our supplies and we and we we do indeed kind of fill up in that sense. Um, it's a it's a lovely image, the market day of the soul. Uh, Tim, he was careful to remember it, to get house and heart in order for it, and when it came, he was studious to improve it. He redeems the morning from super, superfluous sleep and watches the whole day over his thoughts and words, not only to restrain them from wickedness, but worldliness. All parts of the day were like holy to him, and his care was continued in it in variety of holy duties. What he heard in public, he, he repeated in private, to wet it upon himself and family. Lawful recreations he he thought this day unseasonable, and unlawful ones much more abominable. Yet he knew the liberty God gave him for needful repression, which he neither did refuse nor abuse. Just stop there for a second. You see this careful distinction here? That there are some things on other days that are lawful, lawful pleasures. Um, and he says, you know, that's probably not the best use for, for a Sunday. But he recognizes at the same time that it's a day of rest, needful refreshing. And there are all kinds of things that just refresh the soul. 
And that's good. And it's right to participate in those things on, on the Lord's Day. Yeah, Tim. The sacrament of baptism he received in infancy, which he looked back to in age to answer his engagements and claim his privileges. The Lord's Supper he accounted part of his soul's food, to which he labored to keep an appetite. He esteemed it an ordinance of nearest communion with Christ, and so required most exact preparation. Okay, this is an ordinance of nearest communion with Christ. Now, whenever the Reformers and the Church of England speaks of the Lord's Supper, um, there's always a sense of a... <laughs> There's always a sense of a kind of a mystical plus here. And I don't mean to say that we we kind of the the the, the table is more important than the word. Um, I, I don't want to say that. Because they both convey Christ, right? The the preaching of the word conveys Christ, the Lord's table conveys Christ. And so we don't want to say I get, you know, half a cup of Christ here and three quarters of a cup of Christ. It just kind of gets absurd and ridiculous. At the same time, when Calvin or Luther or any of their successors in the Church of England speaks of the Lord's table, there's always this kind of mystical plus to it. They called it the Mysterium Tremendum from, from way, way back. That, that is, we, we are fed upon Christ and nourished upon the total Christ. The total Christ in his humanity and in his divinity in a way that we don't anywhere else. And... Um, as we as we think about a Sunday where we're where we're approaching Christ in the Lord's Supper, there ought to be, as Jerry says, a kind of a, a kind of a preparation of its sense of importance. This is why I'm supposed to announce to you from time to time that I'm I'm going to conduct the Lord's Supper, so that you guys can get your, get ready to meet with Christ in a very powerful way. Now, when we think of the preaching of the Word in the Lord's Supper, what is it about the Lord's Supper scripturally? That makes us think this is a fearful and an awesome thing. What what is it in Scripture that tells us that the Lord's Supper is is quite an awesome and distinct moment? Anyone think? Yeah. If you don't do it correctly, you can get sick or die. That's pretty astonishing, isn't it? That's pretty fearful. Um, and I think that that um, there, there's enough warning there that we all at least take that quite seriously. That we, and what does Paul say about the people who aren't approaching it correctly? What are they not doing? They're not discerning something. Yeah, they're not discerning the body. They don't discern the body. They they take the supper as a kind of a thing, and they just go around, and it doesn't really matter to them. Christ. And the scripture says that there's a, there's a kind of judgment, not a kind of judgment, there's a very a serious judgment that can fall upon individuals for not, for not um, partaking of the Lord's Supper correctly. That's why the, the um, article here says that the sacraments need to be duly ministered according to Christ's institution and ordinance. There needs to be a right kind of administration here. It needs to be done rightly. This is why... In the Anglican Communion, only the priest um, conducts the Lord's Supper. It's a way to protect the table. We take it so seriously, and we know that it's a matter of life and death uh, for people. And so I don't want people to um, to take it uh, in, in a way that's 
um, uh, flippant or trite. Um, and I, I don't want people to come up and receive communion who, who aren't believers, who can't discern the body. Um, and so I, I have to, to, to be very careful there. Um, but in the Anglican tradition, you'll note that it's the liturgy that, that helps us to think, um, helps us to think um, rightly and profoundly about what's going on. I've been in some absolute catastrophe Lord's Supper services. Just catastrophic. Like a buffet. Just, you know, come and get it when you're ready. Here it is, you know, it's up to you, go get it. And it's, uh, I've, I've, you know, was in a church where, where at Christmas time it was done with eggnog. Eggnog, and what was the eggnog and cookies or something? Or Duly administered. Why? Because it's a profound moment where the where we we actually we actually are, are are fed upon the total Christ mysteriously supernaturally it's not just thinking about Jesus now I'm not going to go on and on about this because there is a there is another article on the Lord's Supper where we'll explore the the, the reformed and anglican view of the Lord's Supper but we're not just remembering Jesus right we're not doing that is it not Paul says a koinonia with Christ. The word there is very, very intimate as he uses it in the Greek. This isn't not a fellowship with Christ. This is why we get the word communion. You are actually in, in a profound moment of communing with the Lord at this table. Is it not a koinonia with the body, he says? Is it not a koinonia with the blood? That's very, very powerful. And uh, so there is a, a mystical plus here that I think we need to regard and understand. Um, so they need to be duly ministered. Now, finally, finally, the sacraments duly ministered and the heirs of Rome. I just put this in small print because I, had, I didn't want another page. Okay, so what does it say? It says that as the church of Jerusalem, Alexandria, and Antioch have erred, or erred, so also Rome has erred. Now, on the one, cent, on the one hand, the church of England is saying Rome is an error, but it's also saying something else here, isn't it? As this church and that church and that church have, have erred, so Rome has erred. What is it in a backwards way saying about Rome? The true church. The true church. Yeah. This article, uh, 19, acknowledges that Rome is as true a church as Antioch or Jerusalem um, or Alexandria. Uh, so uh, here I have a little quote from Richard Hooker. He talks about her gross, this is from his ecclesiastical polity, he talks about her gross and her grievous abominations. Yet touching those main parts of Christian truth wherein they constantly still persist, what are the main truths of Christianity in which the Church of Rome does persist and confesses? It confesses the... Oh yeah, it confesses the Trinity, but in a broader... Yeah, the Creed, right? They confess the, the Apostles' Creed, they confess the, the Nicene Creed, they confess the Athanasian Creed. All these creeds they confess joyfully, as we do. And therefore, says Hooker, we have to acknowledge them to be of the family of Jesus Christ. Because they acknowledge the same creed as we do. Um, and uh, that's, where we were, that, that's where the Anglican Church uh, stands. However, what are their errors? Well, there's errors in living. Here, clerical celibacy. Um, primarily, although there are others. Errors ceremonial. 
speaking in an unknown tongue. Now, the reformers, when they read 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, speaking in an unknown tongue, they just they just saw kind of the, the Roman church and the Latin mass. That was to them. You know, you need to speak intelligibly to people, which, of course, it translates, right? I mean, that's true. If I, if I get up and speak Latin to you guys and you don't understand, um, then you're no better for it. Um, and so you do need to speak in a known tongue. Um, that's the ceremonial problem, as well as denying the cup to laity. We've talked about this before. In Now, there's been some reform in the Church of Rome, but at this time, at least, um, you only had the, the bread. You weren't allowed the cup, um, and the reformers rightly thought that was wrong. And there are errors doctrinal in the Church of Rome, namely works of supererogation, which we all know now, the doctrine of purgatory, which C.S. Lewis hoped for, seven sacraments, we, we, have, we have two, transubstantiation, prayers to the saints, and we could probably go on for quite a while um, of, of other ones. So there are many, many errors, but we are in ecumenical relationship with them. I had a, a very interesting, um, when I came out of um, my BA here, um, I was a bit more hot-headed about Rome. And I remember being in a very kind of feverish argument with someone. Um, and there was a Roman Catholic girl next to me. And my, I was talking with my professor, actually. And... Uh, um, we're talking about Mary. And I said, it's not like she was a virgin after she gave birth to Jesus. And he looked at me and he just, oh, John. And it's this, this girl, <laughs> she said, time for me to go. And she kind of, she took off. And so I had a very um, more kind of tempestuous view of, of Rome. When I went to seminary uh, and was um, taking an evening class, my professor invited a Roman Catholic priest in to come and talk about Augustine. And I listened to this priest for about an hour talk about Augustine and Christ and the love of God. And I've, I've never heard someone speak so sweetly about Jesus as I did this man. And it changed, it changed my, it helped to change my views on these things. This man loves the Lord. And this man reads Augustine. And this man is, 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 uh, is a believer. And uh, I, although I, of course, I couldn't tell according to this, I, I, but I, I deemed that he was part of the visible church. And um, um, so we must be wary of Rome. We must, like Hooker, acknowledge that they have grievous and gross abominations. We can say that, but we can't say that they're not brothers and sisters in Christ because on the basis of their creed. Um, so you'll never hear me preaching against Rome uh, from the pulpit. I don't think that's a proper thing to do, even if I allude to its grievous and gross abominations um, from time to time. Guys, that's the end. That's quite enough of me talking. Any questions about um, implications here or anything arising from Article 19? Congregation of faithful men and women where the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments are duly administered. Yeah. Yeah, the prayer book. The prayer book doesn't actually specify. Um, you have to read some of the rubrics to kind of get hints at what they did. Um, Calvin wanted it every week. Um, the reason that we've done it, I mean, uh, we follow St. John's pattern, uh, St. John's Vancouver, and they do morning prayer and they do Lord's Supper. Um, and I, 
I could be myself quite happy with Lord's Supper every week um, because I just think it's so important. And I don't, I don't have a sense. The Presbyterians, the old Presbyterians, the old Scots Presbyterians, they had it far more infrequently because they had the idea, not because they dismissed it's important, because it's so important that you want to leave it only a couple times a year so that when it comes, you're like, oh, you really regard it, right? Um, I don't think that... that, that um, um, doing something many times necessarily makes it a perfunctory task. I think that all depends on how you approach it. I, I get up every morning to meet with the Lord. That doesn't mean it's perfunctory because I do it every morning. right? The Bible actually says, right? there's one guy in the Old Testament, every time, three times a day, he got alone with God. Boom, boom, boom. He's very regular, very ordered. He's one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. Um... And so I, 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 and I think that's a biblical pattern, actually, but as does the Church of England, morning prayer, afternoon prayer, evening prayer. That's its, that's its pattern, the, the daily offices. Um, so I could quite happily do it. We had come out of Resurrection Anglican, that pattern itself after St. John's as well, um, looking at the, um, I think part of the rationale was that it's, it shows the parity of word and sacrament. So one week is more, more word, one week is word and sacrament kind of uh, idea. Um, and I was quite happy planting the church near the university where there would be many people who may not be accustomed to the Eucharist every week um, and, and thinking it may be more accessible to them. And given that there's no exact prescription in the prayer book is to have it every week. Um, but from, from now doing it every other week, for me, once a month is way too infrequent. I couldn't imagine that. I'd be like, oh, it's too, too long, right? Um, but yeah, it's, it's really, there's, there's no direct prescription to it. Um, and, uh, it's not entirely clear what, what Cranmer had envisioned for that. Yeah. But I do know that Calvin had envisioned every uh, day. There are a number of Anglican churches every week. Um, um, there, the priest is supposed to do it much more often. Um, not by himself, but, um. Um, there are many Anglican churches that are, are very convicted and convinced that it needs to be every week, if only for the reason that if um, visitors come through town, they're traveling and they're hoping to get the Lord's Supper, they're thirsty and gasping for the Lord's body and blood, as ought to be. I mean, it, it really ought to be, right? We've, we're so ruined by the fall and so wrecked by sin. We're just gaping for the blood of Christ. If you read Thomas Watson, the Puritan, a beautiful book on the Lord's Supper. It's such vivid, strong language of this kind of just drinking the blood of Jesus as a, as a dying man. Um, that's how we should feel, right? I mean, that's typically how I want to feel. Ruined and wrecked. Just a complete mess. And then I come to the table and he just washes it all away. What a moment. And he gives me himself. He infuses me with himself. When I go up to the table, um, what I will often say to myself, especially if I'm if I'm in a lineup waiting to get there, is to repeat to myself, my brokenness for your wholeness, my sin for your righteousness, my sickness for your health, my darkness for your light, my sin for your righteousness. It's, I say that to myself because it's about this exchange. You're really, something's happening. At the Lord's Supper, um, so Janet, long answer. I could do it every. I could do it every week. Mm 
Um, Wesley, I think John Wesley did it something like four or five times a week. He had, he had communion. He was an Anglican, right? Anglican minister, Anglican priest. Um, and uh, he was so convinced about its importance that he, had, he did it several times a week. Um, there are there are records of the early church doing it every Sunday. Um, in fact, there are some there are some arguments based on the early church that would make the table to have primacy in the church service. Um, and you'll see a number of those arguments: the primacy of the table. You see that in Robert Weber. Um, what he fails to recognize is that though they had though they had uh, the table every week, they had two hour sermons every week. Um, and you thought 42 minutes was long this last week, uh, this last Sunday. <laughs> two hours, two hours of, of preaching. Um, so, um, but, but I mean, it, it, it uh, um, yeah, so there is evidence that it was every week. Um, and we do have the Lord's words to us, right? What does the Lord say? Do this yeah, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me, or as is sometimes kind of paraphrased, if I'm not mistaken, do this often in remembrance of me. Isn't that written on those, a lot of those tables? Do this often in remembrance of me. So I think there's a, there's a kind of a scriptural mandate for, for frequency at the table. And if we do have a visitor coming through and they're gasping and thirsting for the blood of Jesus and we offer them only morning prayer, they're like, oh! You know, um, so um, our our vicar, our Episcopal vicar, his name is Don Harvey. He's a great guy, very high church. He gave us a he 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 gave us a burning appeal a few synods ago to, for every church in Anik to have communion every Sunday. Yeah, I'm not against that. I just you know, I think perhaps it's for some people it's it might be. It might be a leap. What do you guys think? Would that be a leap for you? We do. Right. You see a lot of that kind of. They 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 when they they gathered they devoted themselves. Very strong word. They they were kind of. Um, The apostles' teaching, the, the the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and to prayer. These these four things. It was it characterized who they were and what they were about. Um, when Carl and I were first married, we went to the church there. Yeah. Some, like a, some a PCA church, church or? I don't know. <laughs> it wasn't really right. a Presbyterian church. Right. It was actually Robbie's Oh, yeah, right, yeah. So that kind Robbie's, of the... Robbie's brother, Chris, was the pastor. Pomo, Pomo Church. Yeah, it was it was a little different, but they yeah. they did um they did adopt some some good traditions even if they might not have mm -hmm. taught them. Yeah, but I I liked that one. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I thought it was good. Mm -hmm. I've only ever known that of it once in Oxford. It was the first Sunday that in Oxford right. was already dressed up in a Reformed church. Mm. But I was I don't know I like it. I really like it. Yeah, it's. Um, I look forward to it every Sunday. I love it. Yeah. I love the Lord's Supper. It's very profound. It's very meaningful to me. And and you know why why um, um, 
I encourage you. I encourage you to read if you if you have time to read through that article on on Left Behind um, because I it's a short article, but I tried to kind of um, map out Calvin's theology of the Lord's Supper, which is so astonishingly high. He's higher than any of us. Um, and Calvin Calvin believes that that um, uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, um, we become in a deeper way bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh. We're united to his humanity. See, Calvin says, Calvin has a great fear of Christ over there. He says, if your Christ is a Christ over there, if it's Jesus over there somehow, he's not your Christ. He's, he's not yours. He always must be immediately within us and, and present to us. And, um, you know, so Calvin says, we talk about, um, you know, Christ's deity, his, 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 his person, and being united to him by his by by kind of a supernatural mystical way, uh, and he says that kind of makes sense to us. Being united to his spirit, how are you? How how is Nathan's body united to Christ's body? Like if if Nathan's aspiration is to be one with Christ, one we can't be apart from him, right? In any way, Calvin says, but one with him. How is Nathan's body connected to Christ's? body how we join to his physical body and calvin says it's in through the lord's supper in this communion with christ that we through the spirit we become united to his body because we cannot be outside of christ in any way anyway if you're outside of christ in any way there's, there, there's, you, you are, are not in that sense saved by him. Salvation is through union to Christ. It's not just forgiveness, right? This, um, this is a bit of a tangent, but, but this idea that, that it's just forgiveness of sins, that's all that you need, that's a low view of theology. Forgiveness is there. It's union to Jesus that's most important. Your soul and body have to be united perfectly to him. Or else you're outside of him. And if you're outside of Christ, there's no hope. The Father has to see you in Christ perfectly. Um, so it's a very profound view, something we don't think about um, very much at all. How our bodies are connected to his body. He can't be outside of us. And that's all by the Spirit, Calvin says. It's by the Spirit, not a carnal thing. Mystery. It is mystery all. Any other questions about about the the uh, the uh, the doctrines tonight? Lot to think about uh, here, um, and uh, it's 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 good and right to have our our expectations of what's happening in church elevated, um, and, and to think through these things. So I do have a question. Yeah. So I did the course when I was at the on uh, Yeah, the, the problem is if you start adding extra stuff like that, um, 
then you can quickly deny that a place is a church because they don't have those extras. So if you start saying, you know, a church has to be intergenerational, um, then all of a sudden it's it's not just two or three, which scripture says, right? But it's two or three are gathered in my name. And Calvin says, where the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments are rightly and duly administered according to Christ's institution. If we add something else then, then we can say, it's not a, it's it's not a church because it doesn't have it doesn't have that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd be I'd be nervous about. So when you talk about this is the, the 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 only marks of a church that need to be there to be a church. Yeah. And then the 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 congregation of faithful men and women can can consist of intergenerational or that's good. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you can like really like judge other churches. I know the Pentecostal churches are doing a lot of like, um, like planting churches where people are at, so like on the university campus or like yeah. downtown. In like okay, this is a good question. And 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 do they have the word and sacrament in yeah, those places? That's what I was saying. If they if they had those things specifically in there, would you consider that like? Yep. Calvin says anywhere anywhere you have the word and sacrament, you've got a church. What else is not a church, guys? Let's 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 just kind of fun. What else is not a church? <laughs> a small group is not a church. A small group is a function within a church, but the small group is not a church. It's not. There's no ecclesiola ecclesia, ecclesiola in ecclesia. That's the kind of the sectarian um, movement. Uh, it's not. It's not church there. But you mentioned maybe five minutes ago there were two or three. Yeah. Um, so it's not. Without the sacrament and without the preaching of the, of, of the word by the officer of the church, it's not a church. Discussion of the word. So what about like a house church? Okay. Can you, so, you can still like, have like a pastor if you have like like say within the. If you have someone who's who, if you have someone who's called and who's commissioned by someone with authority. So uh, if we we're going to move over to talk about the the offices of a pastor in another article. It says that if someone's duly called and is ordained by someone with authority, then you have a uh, you have someone in the pastoral office. Mm-hmm. Anglicanism takes the the uh, the church office very seriously, um, and as does Calvin. It's just a reform view of the of a high view of the of the office, and it means that it's when that person's ordained that they're given authority to speak in the name of Christ. That's very serious. So when he says, when they hear you, they hear me. When they reject you, they reject me. And here are the power of the keys. Whose ever sins you remit, they are remitted. Whose ever sins you loose, they are loosed. Most of us have no idea what to do with that, right? Um, those keys. Um, Calvin Calvin in, in, uh, says, in fact, that you, you, you're not forgiven until the officer of the church says the absolution. In some cases, because we're just so desperately sinful, we can't hear it. We can't hear it on our own. We need the the person who's been ordained by Christ to speak with his authority to say, the Lord forgives you your sins. And that that authoritative voice penetrates the heart. Um, and we need to we need to hear that voice. So if in a in a house church you have someone who's been ordained and you have that person conducting the Lord's Supper and preaching the word, then it's a church. It doesn't matter. The building doesn't matter. Yeah. 
benefits. I guess you can be ordained, but still not be like a paid staff. Like, because there's there's also mainland churches, right, where someone might be selected to be a pastor, but you know, it's full time. Yeah, you have you have you have tent makers. Yeah, as long as again, I'm just speaking now the articles here. As long as they've been rightly ordained and set apart for the the the, the task, and they're doing the right thing, preaching the word as we talked about, in a sanctifying way and heavenly doctrine, all these things. Um, yeah, but there are many things that are not the church. Yeah. Did Will ask the question? I was going to ask the same one, so I'm the same. Um, um, there's, there's, I, if I understand the correctly, there's, there seems to be an influx of people yep. sort of establishing churches um, with the primary goal not being the establishment of a church, but the primary goal being almost a parachurch like. Mission, we're going to reach in some bigger cities you have we're going to reach like single people right. in their mid-20s mm -hmm. and then we're going to have a church for them yeah so there seems to be a goal first and then a church second yeah and the church might have these two marks but how are we to consider um how are we to consider that sort of scenario where it, it seems as if the the focus is less on the church and more on a parachurch sort of situation, but they're still, at the very least, pretending unto mm -hmm. sacraments and preaching of the word by an ordained person, except they're doing it only for people between the ages of twenty and twenty-six. Or but they have the they have the sacrament, they have the preaching. Yeah. Like Catholic church. Yeah. No. No. Pacific Island yeah i mean i think that's that's that that's a pragmatic problem yeah okay. but i don't think it's a theological problem um it may be yeah it may be kind of i mean i i think it goes against the spirit of the body of christ and the idea that of, of the 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 heterogeneity of the body old and young and poor and rich and all these different kinds and so if we just focus on one demographic I think that it's a mistake. It's a mistake of body life. I think, um, and I think the problem when you aim for a demographic, if that's your goal, is to aim for one demographic. The the temptation to kind of um, to adjust your message is really too strong. Yeah. Um, and and especially if you're trying to be sensitive to a certain group and and say say the right things and not and not scare people off. I mean, it's just not how the scripture presents it. The scripture, the New Testament never ever in any possible way is worried about stepping on people's toes with the message. Right? Paul, Paul and Paul and Festus, right? Or Paul and Felix is the is the quintessential example. The guy's a total adulterer. And he says, Felix is talking about self-control. Let's talk about um righteousness. And let's talk about the coming judgment. Those three things. Peter, on the on the day of Pentecost, his sermon, I mean it's just like you crucified him, right? They're cut to the heart. Um, so I, I think that that this kind of demographic, trying to kind of so last Sunday, right, Super Bowl Sunday, I just kind of just just for curiosity's sake, going to Google what was going on. 
all these churches there were, were all these ministries you can buy buy packages of of um ministry applications for outreaches super bowl outreaches kind of thing to do it to do on sunday kind of thing to kind of i just don't i i don't see it in scripture i see a very more direct um uh approach and in fact evangelism seems to be in some ways two people coming into the existing worshiping community from the outside and recognizing the presence of god that kind of worship worship evangelism which i wonder if we just haven't lost faith in that an outsider can come into a, a worshiping community and just encounter god's presence fall on their face and say god surely must be among you you guys are all familiar with that from going through it i think that falls in like in line with what you were teaching well, it's it's countercultural. It's gobbledygook to us. It doesn't make any sense. And I, I know my own heart, guys. I, 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 re, I revolt against it. I revolt against it in some ways. And if I revolt against it, then people in the world revolt against it. It doesn't make any sense to a lot of people. Um, it's also a couple of things, guys. It's a trust. It's a trust thing, right? Sabbath is a trust thing. God says, I promise you. I promise you. I will give you everything you need in six days. I promise you. And then he says, trust me. Trust me that the Sunday I'll, you can rest. You don't have to worry about it. I'll take care of all those other things. It's a faith issue. Um, this, this, and all the commandments are like that, right? The commandments are meant to bless us. God's, God's leaning over and saying, see how I'll bless you. Put me to the test. Obey me. See how I'll, I'll give to you. The commandments are, are, are in that way through Christ. In Christ, they're, they're God wanting to bless us. But, but we have to trust him. And it's like with every temptation, the devil's going to come and tempt you. And if you can just stop and listen, God will whisper to you, if you obey me here, if you just obey me, see how I'll bless you and reward you. It's a very, it's a very helpful thing. Pumpkin time. I was just going to say that perhaps you could write Wish we'd all been ready. Good. Larry Norman. <laughs> Larry Norman. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yes. First Corinthians eleven, is that right? Um it's it's Paul's it's Paul's it's it's that whole passage of of communing with the body of Christ. Yeah. Sorry, Chris. Yeah. Yeah. Some of you have even gotten sick of that. I mean, they were. Yeah, they're getting drunk. They were kind of. They were. Guys, it's been a long night. Let's say a word of prayer. Father, help us, God, to truly, um, to truly cherish. Um, your church, the bride that Christ died for and gave himself as a ransom for many. And help us, Lord, to um, joyously and expectantly believe that you will meet us, Lord, through your word and through your sacrament, Lord. And may it become the dearest place to us on earth, I pray, when we gather together for this little eternity and to celebrate what we'll be doing forever, I pray. And Lord, help us all to make it a market day of the soul, word and sacrament, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.